we are in Psalm 8 today, Psalm 8. So if you have your Bible, we're doing our summer psalms. Last week we looked at Summer 1, Psalm 1. We're, we're doing selected texts throughout the psalms this summer, 15 different ones between Psalm 1 and 150. Um, probably not Psalm 119, but uh, if you know how long it is. So, uh, but we will be doing Psalm 8 today, Psalm 8. And so last week, if you were here, Psalm 1 started us off. Uh, and the big kind of major point about Psalm 1 is there's two kinds of people. And it's a really sober, kind of serious-minded text. You're either going to be those who are going to be righteous or unrighteous or the wicked. And so you need to know which one you are. You need to pick uh, which one you want to be. And it all is about Jesus. And so because of Christ, you can be one or the other. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and be open up to Psalm 8 because Psalm 1 kind of sets the tone for all the psalms. Uh, while you're turning, I want to make sure I have one announcement that you know of, uh, and we have a need in the Remedy Kids uh, area for first service. And so if you would like to volunteer to work in Remedy Kids, we desperately could use you. Starting next week, we need two workers. And so uh, we need four total, but starting next week, we need two. So if you'd like to help out with that, come and let me know. Uh, you can also talk to Kelly if you know her, but we could for sure need uh, some help over in the Remedy Kids area. So uh, at, at Remedy, we stand. If so if you're able to, let's stand and read Psalm 8 together. Um, I'll read it out loud, and after I read it, you'll say, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. You'll say, thanks be to God. Psalm chapter 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You've crowned him with honor, glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Lord, help us this morning as we look into your text to see and prize and treasure Jesus. Um, and Holy Spirit, come and teach us so that we can know um, who you are and understand the gospel better and uh, um, deepen our affections for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, the point of Psalm 8 in a sentence, I'm just going to summarize it in one sentence for you, the main idea of the text, according to John Calvin, David, reflecting upon God's fatherly beneficence or kindness, goodness is the way he is a, a great beneficiary towards mankind, is not content with just giving thanks for it, but instead he is enraptured by the comp contemplation of it. So he is absolutely amazed and wants to be more and more amazed. So my goal as we look at Psalm 8, and I think the goal of the text and the goal of the writer and the goal of the Holy Spirit then, is that we would have that happen to us, the same thing that happens to David. For us to see this word majesty today and understand the word majesty and all of its depths and the reasons why we should be in awe of God and that we would <coughs> find ourselves doing that, that we would delight in the splendor of God today. That's that's really the goal of the text. If Psalm 1, the goal is which one kind of man are you going to be, righteous or wicked? The goal of Psalm 8 is this, that you would be 
uh, delighting in the splendor of God today, that you'll be enraptured in the contemplation of the magnificence of who God is. And so <clears throat> if you want to know the clear point of the psalm, uh, it has what's the theological term inclusio. For the layman, that just means book, book uh, casing or whatever you want to call it, you know, bookshelves or whatever it's called on each side. Uh, look, look at verse 1 and look at verse 9. Um, and it says, oh Lord, I know, I know neither one is the right word. I'm going to get it in a second. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Verse 1. Verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So whenever you have that on both sides, that's keying you in. This is the big idea that you need to make sure uh, the, the clear point of the psalm. And then in verse 1b, the second half of 1, down to verse 8, are the reasons why you should exclaim, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He's going to tell us why he's going to say those things on, on both sides. And so that's, that's the big idea of what's going on in the text today. Now, just so you can see, uh, in verse 1 and verse 9, I want to make sure you see um, everything about the declaration, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So when we look at the reasons, it, it stands out even more. Now, it says, O Lord, our Lord, and in the Old Testament, when you have uh, the Lord capitalized differently like that, you can see the first word is all capital letters, and the second word is just a capital L, lowercase o-r-d. That's because there's several words in Old Testament for how to say Lord, and so he's saying, O Yahweh, when you see all caps, that's Yahweh, O Yahweh, our Adonai, that's another word for Lord. So he's saying, O Yahweh, kind of the, the unspeakable name of God, just beyond the I am of the I am's is when it uses, it was what he tells Moses, O Yahweh, and they wouldn't even say that word out loud, they would just write it. Um, and then they would say, Our Lord, our, our, our uh, Adonai, our master, our ruler, our support. And so he's, he's saying all these, declarating about who he is. O Lord, our, 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 our master, our support, our all, all, our all in all, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Calvin says, David, therefore, when reflecting on this incomprehensible goodness of God, which has been graciously, God is graciously pleased to bestow on all the human race, and feeling all the thoughts and all the senses swallowed up, he's overwhelmed in the contemplation, and he just exclaims that is a subject worthy of admiration because it cannot be even set forth in words. Your name, your your power is known everywhere, who you are. There's no place on earth, there's no place in all of the universe where your name is not reigning supreme. You are always completely reigning supreme. And so um, he stands alone as the absolute. And if he is the central reality of everything, then what does that mean? What does that mean? If, if God is truly reigning supreme in every square inch of the entire universe, what does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? What does that mean for us every day? Um, it means, of course, you would read your Bible, right? But much more than that. It's not just that we should give him some, some time to read his word, but instead we should also, as this text is pointing us, to stop multiple times per the day, in a day and week and contemplate the majesty, the absolute splendor and glory of God and be enraptured by it. We should want to stop and think deeply about who God is and so here in the text he's going to give us at least four reasons uh, that you can that you can think about how glorious God is and so if you look at verse one, O Lord O Lord how majestic is your name in all the earth and then he's going to say a reason why because in verse 1b and 2 it would be the first reason you have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouths 
mouth of babes and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the Avenger. The, the, the bad guys and the Marvel comics. The, the Avenger. I'm just kidding. It's not them. Um, you, have, you have stopped all, all people. And so the first thing that we can see is God's ma- majesty is glorious because of the irony of his strength. The irony as in he's using babies, the mouths of babes, to establish strength over the foes or the enemies and the Avengers. Like, so he could do it himself, and so, but he's not. It says out of the mouths of babes. And so number one, his majesty is glorious because of the irony of his strength. You have the weakness of a, of a baby set forth versus the huge strength of God. The huge strength of God could defeat the enemies, could defeat the Avengers, the foes, but instead of using his huge strength, he wants to show just how vast he is by setting in contrast and says, even with the weakness of babies, I can do it. I've set your, I've set your, he set your glory above the heavens, so he's huge, but you stop enemies just with babies. And it seems out of, out of nowhere, he says, out of the mouths of babies, but why here? Um, why is it that he's mentioning babies, and why is it that in this he's wanting us to see that they are defeating the enemies of God? How do babies, who are basically completely and utterly dependent creatures, they can't do anything without us, or an adult, or they'll die. Um, why is it that he's using them to defeat the enemies of God? Now, parents, I know that you're thinking, if you have a newborn baby, uh, and you've felt the utter defeat of your baby uh, in the middle of the night, then you're thinking, they can defeat you me pretty well. But that's not what I'm meaning. I'm saying that they're utterly dependent. And he's saying, out of the mouths, look at that, out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength. What's coming out of their mouths? It's out of their mouths. It's their words. The way that the baby's saying something with baby's words, they're defeating the enemies of God. So what are the babies saying? Now, it doesn't tell us in Psalm 2, but a principle that we need to lay forth, which we're going to uh, (coughs) uh, say today because there's going to be multiple examples of it. Anytime in the New Testament, um, a verse is quoted from the Old Testament, and it's expounded upon in the New Testament, that is how you're supposed to understand the Old Testament. If you're wanting to know ever, I wonder how I can understand this Old Testament verse. Well, you need to look and see if it's ever quoted in the, te- in the New Testament. Usually that's pretty simple because you have these little, these little things in the middle that, that say, hey, go look in the New Testament. This is mentioned. So if you go to the New Testament and that verse is quoted and it's expounded upon by the writer, that is the correct understanding of the Old Testament text because the writers who wrote the New Testament were written under the inspiration, those guys were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so if they look back at the Old Testament and interpret it and say, this is how you should understand it, that's always the right way to do it. That's it. Uh, there's going to be a few examples of that, but here's, here's, here's one. Um, and so this particular text in Psalm 8 is quoted in Matthew 21 by Jesus. Uh, it's in the context of a story, and he says, The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw that the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, have, yes, have you never read out of the mouths and infants and nursing babies? So here he's quoting Psalm 8, out of the mouths and infants. And he tells them, you've established strength. He says, out of the mouths and infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. So now we have a little bit more insight in what's coming out of the mouths of the infants, defeating the, in, the enemies of God. 
literally prepared praise. That's very interesting. Have you ever stopped to kind of think then, therefore, in your life, if there's things going on where you're feeling defeat or you're feeling attacked by the enemy or anything like that, have you ever stopped to consider the lethal punch that praise can pack against the enemies of God? You praise the Lord for what's going on in your life. That puts a, a, a pretty serious stop on the enemies of God. Have you thought deeply on the strength of God's people's praises um, and how that can silence the enemies of God? And so that's what's going on here. When you say out of the mouths of babes and infants, namely the prepared praise that they, they even can praise the Lord, and that includes us, you've established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. Whenever attacks come against you to not believe in Jesus, whenever attacks come to you to give in to temptation, whenever attacks come to you to, in any kind of respect that would want you to go contra to what the Lord would want, a, a way to defeat that is by praise. Giving the Lord praise defeats those things. And that should cause you, when you see them flee, to go back up to verse 1 and say, Oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? I praise you and my enemies, your enemies, fled from me. And so this majesty here um, is being put on display even by babies. Babies. So the contrast is clear. The mark of God's majesty he is here that he stoops down and uses babies' praise to be the means by which he would triumph over the enemies of us or himself to display his majesty. God's majesty is the kind, and ironically, stoops down and sometimes will use the weakest means possible to defeat the enemies of God so that we can see he can use anybody. He can use a baby to defeat his enemies. He doesn't have to use the strongest believer in the entire universe. He can even use babies' praise. They're defeating the enemies of God. If God has an enemy, he could defeat him himself. He could squash him like a bug on the sidewalk. He's dead. He could do it if he wants, just like that, right? But instead, he doesn't do that. He uses other means, namely babies, praise, or even us. Um, and he's doing that by making the weakness of the baby triumph over the enemies to show just how strong he is. If, if a baby can do it, <laughs> how much more powerful is he than that? Infinitely more. And he doesn't even need to use his. He can just do it with a baby. And so um, it's done specifically with praise. So application for your life then. When you leave this, this room, when you leave church this week, and you're going throughout life this week, and you feel attacks from the enemies, there can be, even for you, prepared praise in your future that you would walk in it and that you would praise the Lord and see what he would do in your life. And how those things might flee, how it would cause you to go to verse 1 and verse 9 and say, wow, Lord, you truly are majestic. You truly are majestic. That's the first reason that David gives us to uh, praise the Lord or his, his God is glorious is because of the irony of his strength. The second reason is in verse 3 and 4. When I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, that son of man, that you care for him. The second reason that God is to be uh, gloried in or delighted in or enraptured in his majesty is because of this. Um, his majesty is glorious because of the mystery of his care. The mystery of his care. You can see that's how David finishes verse 4. 
what is the Son of Man that you would care for him? Like, why would you care about me? And he's doing this in the same kind of way. He's, doing, he's setting a contrast. Like in the first one, he sets a contrast of tiny babies to feed, set against the hugeness of God. Either one could defeat. Here he's going to set a little contrast of the smallness of man versus the greatness of God's care. So let's consider something here and make sure we understand. Um, David, he's not, you know, an, an astronomist. He's not a scientist, and he's not trying to set forth necessarily astro- astronomical uh, teachings. By the power of the Holy Spirit, though, he is writing Scripture, and he is teaching us something about God, and he says that God uh, is using um, his fingers to create the heavens. Now, God, doesn't ha- God the Father doesn't have fingers. This is called anthropomorphic language. Anthropomorphic language is it's whenever the Bible, the writers use human characteristics to describe something that God is doing. Like when we would create something, we would use our hands. And so he, that's how man would do it. And so that's anthropos, man. Anthropomorphic language is just using language of something that a man would do to try to help us understand something God's doing. So the fingers of God are doing this. It doesn't mean that he has fingers. It just means if we were doing it, we would use our hands and fingers to do it. And so when God does it, he just does it. But he's just trying to use poetic kind of language to help us understand what's going on. But let's, let's at least take the, 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 the teaching a little bit further because he is going to teach us something here. Um, and that's this. When you, he says, when I look at the heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place. Um, just think about, I'm going to try to, if we can, start with here, here where we are. We're in Rock Hill, and if we were to set our hand out and try to cover up the city of Rock Hill with our hand, I mean, all I can do is just like about six inches on the stage, and I can't cover Rock Hill very much, right? <laughs> now, just consider this. Rock Hill is fairly small uh, compared to the rest of the cities in the world. A lot of, there's a lot of big cities. And then you go back out and you have all of Earth. Compare Rock Hill to the Earth. Rock Hill is tiny compared to the size of the Earth. Now, look at Earth and compare it to the sun. If they would take at least 100 Earths, if you had to put all 100, or think about where we are on Earth, make 100 of those. And the size of it, I think, from, my, from what I've understood, that would take up, if you put all those 100 Earths together, that would be about the size of the sun in our solar system. Just the sun. Now, if you took 100 of our suns, just our sun, 100 of those, and put it together, that could be the size of some of the other stars. So now you're thinking, okay, well, Earth is, Earth is pretty big. You know, I, I don't take up much space on Earth. And we're talking about 100 of these Earths just to put in our one sun. Now you're thinking 100 of those suns and compare it to another star and another universe. Well, that's really large. And it's saying that God's finger puts that star there. Okay, well, that means his hand must be enormous. If he's putting that star, which, like, that means the earth would be like a, a piece of dust on his finger, right? And earth for us is pretty large. Uh, if you've heard the, the, the sayings about the UFOs flying around, right? Uh, everybody's like, there's aliens. I'm like, I don't think there's aliens. I'm sorry, there's not aliens. I don't know what it is, but I don't think it's aliens. Um, Why is there all this space out there? It's just wasted space. We're the only thing in all these, the billions and billions or trillions and light years of galaxies. I don't know a lot about astronomy, so I can't speak the language, but it's huge out there, right? That's a lot of wasted space for this to be the only life. And I'm like, well, yeah, if that's how you want to think, but it's not wasted space. Like, if we're here and all that out there, it's not wasted space. It's giving you the understanding of how big God is. All that's out there being unused to let you see that God is infinitely larger than all of that. 
it's there for Christians to understand how big God is. It's not wasted space. It's for us who are believers to understand, whoa, God is absolutely enormous. He's huge. When I look at your, your fingers, the heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and stars, which you have set in place. So David is just start, starting to realize, okay, like, this God is huge. He, he, if he was to try to set himself in all of the universe, it wouldn't even hold him. And then you just keep going down and keep going down, keep going down, keep going down. And there he is kind of sitting there writing this in this one little place where he is. And he's like, I am infinitely smaller than God. Which leads him to the question, why do you care about me, God? I'm so much smaller than you. Way smaller than you. Why would you ever care about me? Now, this is a rhetorical question. Because David knows that God cares about him. Just like he cares about you. So the, the vastness of the universe is to help us understand how unbelievably large he is so that when we realize the God who is that big, Yahweh, cares individually about me and then every single person that lives. Wow. I mean, that is helping me understand because of the mystery of his care. His majesty is so glorious because he cares deeply about me. Calvin says, God comes forth from so noble and so glorious as a part of his works and stoops down to us, the poor worms of earth, to magnify and to give more illustrious manifestation of his goodness. He cares for you because he loves you, and when he cares for you, it puts on display just how great he is. If God is that large and we are this small, and he looks down on our particular universe and our particular solar system, our particular planet and our particular country and state in this one particular city on this one particular man, it can become a bit overwhelming. But what he's helping us see is that even though he's so large, he's intimately involved in your care. Intimately involved in everything that's going on with you. And he deeply cares about you. He deeply cares. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for me. Why God are you caring for little old me. Whenever you've got this enormous universe. It would probably be, be good. Uh, for us to stop and ask that question. More often. It would be good practice for you. To think a lot more often. <laughs> God why? If you're so enormous. Are you stopping to care about me? At least two things I can think of. First. To humble us. To remind us of just how small we are. That's good. Uh, if you have a case of I can get a big head, uh, then that's really good. I have that case all the time. Look how, uh, look how big I am and my head is and how awesome I think I am. And then if I can put myself in contemplation of who God is, oh, I'm not, I'm not that big of a deal at all. Um, to remind us of just how small we are. That would be good reason to ask ourselves this. But also to fill us with awe. To make us all filled because it reminds us of just how great God is. Ralph Davis, only the condensation or the coming down of God can hold together astronomical vastness and individual concern. And it gives David liturgical goosebumps. He's awesome. I love Ralph Davis. So let's make an easy application here. Um, <clears throat> if God, who is infinitely bigger and infinitely, quote unquote, more important than you and I, stoops down to care for us, 
who are infinitely smaller and infinitely, quote-unquote, less important than God. And I don't, I'm saying, quote, because you're important, right? You obviously are. Um, if he does this, then it must be like he absolutely cares for us. I mean, it must just be infinitely obvious that he would care for somebody uh, <coughs> because he stoops down and cares for us. And if somebody is so vast would care down, would le- come down and care for somebody like us that's so small, application, then who in your life can you show this same kind of care for? If God would do that, we should do that. We should find people, and I'm not trying to say, you know, go look for the people that are way less important than you <laughs> and let them know. Since you're way less important than me, I'm going to show you care. That's, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying there's people around you. You can measure whether they're more important or less important. I think we're all important. Um, just care for people. If God would do that, then we should do that. We, we should go care for people in the same way that God would want to care for us. Who can you care for? Dale Ralph Davis says, What is man or the son of man? Why should a mere speck of dust in the light years of God's calendar matter to him? David at least has no out, uh, doubt here that he does matter. He's just baffled over to why he matters. When he says, what is man? He's not asking a question, but then making an exclamation. He's really saying, what a God. He's not posing a mental teaser. He's engaging, engaging in breathless praise. What do you, God, why would you care for me? Is David's way of saying, what an amazing God. Which leads him back to, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's the second reason. Third reason, verse 5 through 8. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. So now he's going to talk about man. He's going to, what is man that you care for him? Now he's going to describe man in verses 5 through 8 here. He says, you have made man, you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and all also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the, of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Now, that particular text, 5 through 8, has this kind of double meaning, all right? So number 3 and 4 are the two meanings. We're going to do the first meaning for number 3, and then reason 4 will be number four, or the second meaning. So let's go up and think about this. So we read verse eight, and we're, we're asking here, the smallness of God's man's thoughts versus the bigness of God's word. We have here, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly being. So let's, let's go ahead and put up number three. God's majesty is glorious because of the clarity of his revelation. When we say revelation, this just means God is revealing himself to us. Uh, it's not the last book of the Bible, although that is the last book of the Bible. That's not what I mean here. I just mean God revealing himself to you, and that is specifically through his word, through his Bible, the clarity of his written scriptures. And so, okay, why is David so clear with God's word? Well, um, how does David know that God cares for him? How does David know? It's not just that he can look at the vast universe and because he's writing and he's still alive and he ate a good meal that day, he can say, well, God cares for me. I had a great set of fish today. That's not it, right? How does God, it's, it's an epistemological question. How does David know that God cares for him? Well, we learned it in VBS. Jesus loves me, this I know. For, go ahead, come on. For the Bible tells me so. That's how. That's how he knows. Verses 5 through 8 is David 
in a poetic way, writing Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, the creation account. What he's doing here is a poetic summary of Genesis chapter 26, verse 31. How David knows that God cares for him is because God's Bible is clear, and it's told him, I care for you. So David, in verses 5 through 8, is letting you know, here's how I know God cares for me. He set me over. Uh, You've made me a little lower than the heavenly beings, the angels. you crowned me with glory and honor. You've given me dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his meaning, uh, under my feet, and sheep and oxen and the beasts of the field, birds of the heavens, fish of the sea, pass along the paths. Like, it's a poetic summary of Genesis 1, 26 through 31. When he's asking, what is man? He's answering the question, what is man, in 5 through 8. And it's all word-centered. He's answering it with the Bible. Genesis 1, 26 through 31. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Just notice the plural, by the way. Let us make man in our image. This is just a side note to help you see that the Trinity is in the Old Testament in Genesis 1. Um, and let them have dominion. The, the image of God, the Latin imago Dei, just, there's, there's 12 sermons I could teach on that, right? On, but if there's anything, every person, every human is intrinsically valuable because they are made in the image of God. So there's not a person in the world, if they're human, that's not unbelievably important and their life is unbelievably important because every human's made in the image of God. And so David knows, I'm, you care for me because I'm made in the image of God. And he keeps going, and let them have dominion over, see how much this sounds like five through eight. Fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and the livestock over the earth and over all the creeping things that creeps on the earth. So God made man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them. And he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heaven and over living things that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, you have given plant yielding seed on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, <coughs> and to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was, it was good, and it was evening and morning, the sixth day. And so David, in verses 5 through 8, is saying, your Bible's so clear to me, God. You are majestic because you have given me a word that's so clear that lets me know that you care for me because you've told me in your word um, why you care for me, because you have created me in your own image. And so God is glorious because he's been so good and assuring that he cares for us because he has told us in his word. God is glorious because he's given us a word, namely his Bible. His revelation is clear. He gave us his word written down. His word is sure. His word is clear. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We can know the Lord through his word. And so read the Bible Every day, see all the treasures that abound. His word is absolutely clear, and his word is absolutely amazing. That's, now, so there's kind of a, a two-pronged understanding to 5 and 8. Number one is what we just saw. The second way that we can see it is this. Number four, God's majesty is glorious because of the certainty of his plan in Jesus. The certainty of his plan in Jesus. Well, if you look at... Uh, 5 through 8 again. Look at, we're going to key in on verse 6. You have made him a little lower um, than the heavenly beings. You crown him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion 
over the works of your hands, you have put all things under his feet. All things. Okay, think about this for a second. Deeply with me here. Is it true, do you think, that we, man, have dominion over all things? Well, in a lot of ways, yes. Genesis 1 is true, and we've seen it uh, as it's told to us in Genesis 1. We do have dominion in the sense of the creation order over all things. But there are some things that have dominion over us. This is Genesis 1. When you keep going in Genesis, you get to Genesis 3. Something enters into the framework of broken man society in Genesis 3 where all of a sudden man doesn't have dominion over it anymore. Namely, sin and death. So the all things kind of sticks out like a sore thumb in verses 6. And we don't see um, death, sin, and pain in subjection to men. Instead, we see those things over man. And we have no hope to defeat it. At all. Calvin makes this point. If all things are subdued in Christ, then nothing ought to stand out in opposition to his people. But we see death still exercising his tyranny against them. It follows then that there remains a hope of the better state than the present. Meaning this. If you just go throughout the day and you think, my present state at some times can really stink. (laughs) And if there is a God, this present state has to get better. It just has to get better. How could it? Only in Jesus. So we were, we had everything under our subjection, Genesis 1. Genesis 3, the fall happens. Death is now over us. Now, when you're in Christ, I'm, I'm speaking in a broad sense of man. Death is over man. And so we have this thing over us that's destroying us. It's destroying us. And so we have to have someone who can come and set things right defeat Satan, sin, and death so that they are now subject under us and we are incapable of doing it. But Jesus isn't. And so that's why I say because of the certainty of his plan. Verses 5 through 8 in a two-pronged sense point us back to Genesis 1, the certainty of his word, but also point us forward to Jesus and what he does for us. This is not the best it can be right now. And so the writers of Hebrews, um, Whoever he is, Paul, Luke, Barnabas, I've heard everything. I don't know who it is. I think it's Paul. Um, Corinthians and Ephesians, Paul writes those two, takes this section in Psalm 8, verses 5 through 8, and they uh, will quote it and expound on it a little bit. Remember our principle. When the New Testament expounds on something in the Old Testament, that is how you understand that part of the Old Testament. And so... um, Hebrews, Corinthians, and Ephesians quote this section, 5 through 8, and expound on it a little bit to help us see verses 5 through 8 is actually pointing us all to Jesus. It's all about Christ. It is, in one sense, about creation in Genesis 1, but it's also, in the second sense, about Jesus. The New Testament writer um, is helping us understand the, cre- the clear way. So I'm going I'm to take them Hebrews, 1 Corinthians, and then Ephesians. Hebrews. <coughs> Chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, says this. 4. Now, in 2, this is where he's trying to help us see. That, like, the, the book of Hebrews is just like, Jesus is better than everybody. He's better than everybody. He's better than this guy. He's better than this guy. He's better than these people. That's, that's all what it is. And in this section, Jesus is better than angels. So here we are. For it was not 
uh, to angels that God subjected the world to come, for which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. Now, watch this. Watch this. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? That's verse 4. And then it says, you made him, uh, we're in verse 5, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, is what verse 5 says. This one says, you made him, quote, for a little while, lower than the angels. Hebrews inserts this little phrase, for a little while, lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. The writer of Hebrews feels compelled to take Psalm 8 and say, for a little while. You have made him, in verse man, you have made him little lower than the heavenly beings. You have made him, for a little while, lower than the angels. Um, you have crowned him with glory and honor and putting everything under subjection to his feet. Why does he insert for a little while? Keep reading. That was the quote of Psalm 8 in Hebrews, and now he keeps going and writes in Hebrews, now putting everything in subjection to him. He left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for a little while who was. So now he says, you've made him for a little while lower. He's actually going to tell us, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So remember, we have this problem that death is over us, and it's saying that Jesus might taste death for everyone, so that no, that's no longer ruling and reigning over us, but now, in glory, we will be restored back to the way it was in Genesis 1. And namely, this, this person who has been made lower for a little while is Jesus. And so here in Psalm 5, it's pointing us that Jesus is the one that's going to come do that for us. Paul's explaining it for us. That for, the writer adds for a little while, helping us see that Psalm 8 is pointing us to Jesus. And he's saying that Jesus is greater than the angels. And it's God's plan to redeem man is going to happen and it's sure. Death is ruling and reigning over man. But he made Jesus for a little while to be a, um, an incarnated human. He's still a human but lived here for a little while and then defeated Seth, Satan, sin, and death on the cross and now he's exalted as the God-man in heaven forever. And now death doesn't reign over us if we trust in him. That's the way uh, Hebrews says it, but he also quotes it in, first, or the writer of 1 Corinthians, Paul says it in, in 1 Corinthians 15, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. This is a little wordy. Paul's a little wordy here, but I'll explain it. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. When it says all things are put in subjection. It is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son of Man himself will be sub subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him so that God may be all in all. Paul, could you be more clear? No. Um, so uh, basically what he's just saying here is um, even Jesus himself is kind of subjecting himself to the plan of God the Father. God the Father has a plan Jesus is going to subject himself to the plan of God the Father, which is namely what we saw in Hebrews, to destroy death. Because otherwise man is going to live forever separated from him. Ephesians, 2, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23 also quotes it by saying, and he put all things under his feet, and here's where it gets awesome, because he's going to talk about the exaltation of Jesus, specifically over the church. That's us, the ones who need death erased. He put all things under his feet and, gave, feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him 
who fills all in all. So he's talking about this putting all things under his feet and gave him head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So let's put this all together in one sentence um, so we can feel the glory of the truth bomb being dropped on us. All right, here's, here's all of it in one sentence. God is glorious because his eternal plan, in his eternal plan, he sent his son Jesus to rescue us by dying on the cross, defeating death for us on our behalf, and then putting Jesus over the church to fill us and to give us salvation. That's what Hebrews is telling us. That's when it's pointing back to Psalm 8, that this is the certainty of the plan of Jesus, that we were all dead, but now, because of Jesus, um, death is now defeated for us. Because of his suffering and his death, he has been crowned with glory and honor, and he reigns already over the entire created order, and he's going to bring many sons to glory in his reign. So the all things is true when here all things are subjected, but only in Jesus. All things are still in subjection, even death for Christians, but only because of Jesus. In Christ, you have even rule over death. Calvin sums it up this way. The sum is this. God in creating man gave us a demonstration of his infinite grace and more than fatherly love towards him, which ought justly to strike us with amazement. And although by the fall of man that happy condition has been almost entirely ruined, whenever we fell, that is ruined, yet there is still in him some remains of the liberality which God then displayed towards him, which should suffice to fill us with admiration. So the, the end goal of it all is when we see God has saved us in Jesus in verses 5 through 8, that should bring you right back out to verses 1 through 9 to make you say, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I want to end it this way. This way I always end everything. How do you see Jesus in Psalm 8? Well, I just showed you. I just showed you. I don't even have to fill in that section. That section's done. How do you see Jesus in Psalm 8? We just saw it. He's the one that defeats death for us. Um, so the question then is, what should you do? What, what should you do in light of Psalm 8? Well, every day you should stand up and scream out and declare from the top of your lungs, O Lord, O our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then fall down on your face and say, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And walk throughout the day declaring to those around you, our Lord is majestic and he's due all the praise that we can give. He's due our entire life because of his glory. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your love, your mercy you've given to us in Christ. We thank you that you have um, even defeated the only enemy that would, had destroyed us uh, because of sin and the tempt because of the tempter Satan. You have de defeated death, <coughs> and it's all because of Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you. We love you. We are in awe of who you are and how much you love us. Lord, I pray that you would uh, cause us to walk throughout the, uh, our entire lives declaring your majesty, not just to our own souls, but to those in this lost and dying world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.